We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. On today's edition, we'll be discussing self-care and how to be your own best friend. Often this is seen as pampering yourself with massages, pedicures and other treats. Nothing wrong with those, but I would like to go deeper and look at some spiritual practices for healing from trauma, improving your self-confidence and living a more authentic life. My guest is Julia Paulette Hollenbury, the author of a new book, The Healing Power of Pleasure, Seven Medicines for Rediscovering the Innate Joy of Being. Julia describes herself as a body worker, healer, and a facilitator. She is a practitioner of the Grindberg Method of Bodywork, Biodynamic Craniosacral Therapy, and Kashmiri Tantra. What I like about hosting this podcast is the wide range of guests that I meet. One of the problems of my training, both from school and university, is that it favoured the life of the mind. My training as a marital therapist brought in feelings. Beyond a passing interest in body language, it more or less skipped over clients' bodies, and touching them was completely forbidden. In contrast, as a child, Julia would help her mother, who was a physiotherapist working from home. With the client's permission, Julia would take a leg or an arm to work, so she's very much concerned with the body. So today I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I believe our two worlds can come together for a fascinating and productive conversation. So welcome, Julia. You'll have to help me by explaining what you mean by a body worker, the Grindberg method, and craniosacral therapy. I'm going to have trouble saying those words, but uh, please enlighten us. Body work is a kind of therapy that, yes, uses hands directly on the body or sometimes just above it. And there is a very wide range of touches from very, very subtle and still, which is the way that craniosacral therapy works, to a more contactful, faster and warmer touch. Indeed, the Grimberg method of bodywork uses four different elemental touches for fire, water, earth and air. So it's a bit different than just a plain, ordinary massage. There is perhaps we might say more awareness or more invitation for the client to grow their awareness during a bodywork session. Grow awareness? Develop awareness, increase, learn, discover, learn to pay attention. There are many words we can use. So your book is called The Healing Power of Pleasure, but we have a complicated relationship with pleasure. It's often seen as bad and dangerous and needing to be controlled for the greater good of the social fabric. So I know a lot of listeners will be resistant to the concept of diving into pleasure, but I think you're going to tell us not to be afraid of diving into pleasure. So please explain why you think we need to change our relationship with pleasure. 
Well, it's more subtle than that because exactly as you say, it can be hard to go straight for pleasure when all of our cultural context is as you've laid out at the same time against it and so for it. I mean, we have so much sexual titillation and everything, you know, out in the open, and yet we're a very unsensual, unconnected, unembodied society. So really what I'm saying is that by being true to yourself, being true to yourself as a person who lives in a body and as a person who feels sometimes vulnerable, and delicate, as well as playful and fun and bold, you can find your way into more happiness, sensuality, and consciousness. I love that phrase as a person that lives in a body, because I think a lot of us sort of see ourselves as a brain carried around on a lump of meat sort of thing that we don't actually really this is going to sound weird, but connect with our body. Do you experience quite a lot of of people coming to you in that sort of kind of mind frame? Totally. We are perhaps the most unsensual and unembodied culture across history and geography. We tend to think of ourselves as lollipops, really, heads on sticks, (laughs) and that our bodies are merely a vehicle to transport our so clever heads around. And we think that all of the answers, all of the intelligence that we have comes from our heads. Lots of people don't even know in a way that they've got a body. They don't even know that they've got arms and legs. They really are, and indeed I was, I think, in some ways, in the past, disconnected from the experience of being in the body. And how can you do self-care if you don't actually admit to yourself that you have a body? Hmm, great point. Because what you explain in the book, which I think is you know really important, is if we don't actually accept that we have a body in the full sense of the word, that we sort of fight against the message it gives us. So we just sort of numb, disconnect and zone out. And I wonder how many people who are listening today actually do that. Perhaps you can explain a bit more because these three terms are yours, numbness, disconnection and zoning out. We live in a very overstimulated world. Our trains of thought are constantly interrupted by the blings and dings of mobile phones. We're all under tremendous pressure with deadlines and non-stop connectivity. And almost all of us have some overwhelm, shock and disconnect from trauma. And trauma can be anything that we experienced as being too much. And so we withdraw from fully occupying our bodies. We withdraw away from the feeling uncomfortable, possibly hurt and possibly pleasurable body. And we go up into the ideas of the head, where of course it's quite easy to feel lofty and superior and arrogant and know it all. Or lost. Because we either know it all or we know nothing and people become entirely helpless and hopeless. That's the other end of the scale that I see. Mm. So I want to take a quote from your book, which really spoke to me, and perhaps you can amplify it for me. Squashing our sensitivity can make life seem easier, quicker and simpler, but it also makes us weaker and less happy, able to achieve less than our fully 
pleasurable, powerful potential. I mean, that is a wonderful sort of way of putting it. So expand on that for me. We think that we need to go fast. And in order to go fast, we have to make things simple, black or white, binary, either this or that. And in doing so, we are losing great nuance, great complexity and beauty and richness in our sensual experience. But we have to do that in order to go fast. So it's a kind of survival mechanism. But when we do that, we're operating only from a thin veneer of ourselves, a thin part of ourselves, a small aspect of ourselves. There is tremendous body wisdom that we have. Sometimes there's just an arising impulse or a knowing that the right thing to do now is to turn left or right or to pick up the phone and speak to this person. And that kind of information, those kind of creative solutions, if you like, to problems don't come from our analytical, rational minds. They can do, but they come also from the wisdom of our organs and our limbs and our cells. Every cell is intelligent. Yes, I once read that our guts have as many neurons in them as a dog's brain does. And, you know, dogs are quite intelligent creatures. You know, that really brings home the idea that all our intelligence is not actually in our heads. So I talk about, and many others do as well, about humans being three-brained beings. I don't know about dogs' brains, but I do know that in the gut are as many neural connections as there are in the brain. Maybe I haven't said it exactly anatomically correctly, but there is also a nerve plexus there, the same as in the brain. And the heart region too is very rich in nerves. Again, that's another nerve plexus. And we could think of those as being kind of brains. Yes. So let's talk about your journey to reaching to the point that you can know without knowing. What sort of child were you? Because I have this picture of you as a very helpful child if you're helping your mother with her physiotherapy clients. So paint the picture of you as a child. Bright-eyed and curious about everything. For me, the garden was the place that was most alive and where I felt I could be most free, where the big blue sky met the dark earth and the green grass and the yellow fields at the end of our garden. They were wheat fields. And I loved to touch everything. I remember being entranced by the textures of everything, even metal railings and wooden fences. And I was both connected and disconnected at the same time. I was kind of in touch with everything, with the big all. And at the same time, I didn't know how to communicate that. I didn't know how to communicate when I felt afraid or even necessarily what I was afraid of. I didn't necessarily know how to put my feelings into words. But I have always trusted my instincts. And... I can imagine you were a creative, imaginative child. I wonder what it was like when you arrived at school, because I don't think they would be very keen on you sitting there feeling the texture of the desk you were sitting on and communicating with that. 
Oh, you're reminding me of funny stories that I don't know if they're suitable to tell. But I remember being in the first, you know, reception class and we used to line up, you know, and put our hands together to say prayers. And I used to run out of my place while everybody had their eyes closed and go and kiss this boy further down the line and come back into my place. And of course, in my naivety, I thought everyone else had their eyes shut and nobody would notice. And I remember in secondary school when, the, you know, we were studying Jane Austen and the teacher asked, and what are the qualities of a fine and a, attractive man? And of course, they meant a sense of duty and 30,000 a year or whatever it is. And I remember putting my hand up and saying, a hairy chest, and the whole class <laughs> burst out laughing. Did you have trouble fitting in? Yes. And does that have an impact on who you were and who you became? I don't know how to say what was cause and effect, but... I had to find my way. I had such a strong, if you like, burning light inside of me and a sense of what I would do in the future. So I had very strong motivation to want to heal myself. And that's what I did. I took myself on a tremendous journey exploring this therapy or that therapy or this modality or this teacher, I was determined to find the sense of wholeness that I could feel, that I knew was possible. I was determined to reclaim my fullest sense of myself. So that was my guiding, my guiding way for a long time, for many, many years. So what sort of blocks did you have to overcome? Can you give me some sort of concrete examples? I had a lot of fear and panic and loneliness, and self-doubt, and self-criticism. I guess it's the usual stuff. Could you tell us a story that would help us understand that? Well, I remember the day that I think of as being the worst day of my life, which was a sunny day on the weekend, and I was living in a, a warm country then. So I was down by the beach with my friend. How old were you? I was in my early 20s and I remember looking at all the happy people on the beach, people with their families carefree on the weekend and at my friend who was with me and feeling that everybody else was entitled to God except for me. That's very dark. I've moved through a lot. And how do you move from that to somebody who is dedicating her life to connecting with pleasure and helping other people connect with pleasure? Because that seems to me the antithesis of pleasure. It's true. There was a, a lot of suffering and I guess what they call the dark night of the soul. And yet there was always this knowing. I was always connected with the big all, with the mystery, with knowing without knowing. I always had my own way of being connected. So it wasn't one thing or the other. There was great difficulty, but there was also great possibility or potential. And how I found my way was sheer curiosity and determination, one step at a time, finding somebody who I felt had qualities that I wanted. And so I went to be a student of theirs for a while. And then when I felt that peace or journey was completed, then I found 
the next therapist or teacher that was drawing me. And I was really pretty committed. And everybody is coming from a different place and everybody has somewhere different to reach. So everyone has to find their own way. You know, when you look out for the first time to try and find a therapist and it's not easy, you know, you might go and see three therapists and still, you know, and you will have a hunch that one of them is the right person, you know, or there may be therapists that your friends recommend you to, but you don't feel that they're the right person, right? You know, it is a journey. It's, it's an absolute journey of discovery. It's a kind of personal adventure. And as I'm sure you do too, really wish to encourage people to make that journey that adventure because it can be so very richly rewarding. So you spoke at the beginning of the interview about trauma and how everybody has an element of trauma. What do you think your personal traumas have been? Well, they're many layered in a way. What I've come over time to understand is that the way in which I was born was not easy and that had a tremendous impact on my body, on my head, on my system, on my way of being in the world. And there was also the loss of my twin in vitro. And I think that (laughs) when I was younger, when I was a child, I really, as I said earlier, did not know how to articulate my experiences, how to share the degree of vulnerability that I felt and how to really ask and perhaps also receive the comfort and contact that I needed. How old were you when you discovered that you had a twin brother who died? I was probably in my 40s, I think. Wow, as late as that. Well, my experience of the healing journey is that they're kind of chapters, right? You know, and you deal with one piece and then you deal with another piece and then you're ready to deal with another piece. Because I'm feeling at this precise moment a huge amount of pain because whether your mother knew it or not, there must have been a horrific experience. You know, she's got joy of birth and she's got the overwhelming sadness of death all at the same time. You know, what must it have been like being a a mother with a child at that point? What must it have been like for you? I mean, it is quite astounding. Thank you for your compassion. And as you speak, what I become aware of are the many layers, of course. You know, my mum grew up, her father was away in the war. You know, all of everybody's experience is so multi-layered. There are so many facets and things that come into play. Some we are consciously aware of and others, as you say, we may feel them without knowing, perhaps without ever knowing the root cause or or what really happened. And did discovering this make a big change to you in your 40s? It wasn't the cognitive understanding. It was the being able to move through that process in various different 
forms that made the difference, that enabled the processing to take place. Give us some sense of what that involved. So I'm speaking of work through osteopathy, Mm -hmm. which is allied to craniosacral therapy. And um, I've gone slightly shaky over here, which is just fine. I guess sensing into that field and also through constellation work. And of course, there are other ways like homeopathy as well that can reach these subtle, delicate, tender, old places in us. And what do you think this shakiness is trying to tell you? It's a shakiness in my lower belly. And I think that perhaps there is something about speaking this level of realness has an impact on me. And is it saying to you to tell me to actually just take a step back or am I drawing the wrong conclusion from that? No, I feel fine in myself. It's more like the release of something, something rearranging. And in a sense, thank you very much for for sharing that. It sort of, in a way, gives us a, a live kind of sense of how the body has knowledge that we actually need. And it needs to be brought from that level up to the mouth to be talked about. And then we can talk about it. And, you know, I'm feeling a little less shaky myself. And, you know, but it has been really helpful for this conversation, that knowledge that you identified it, you said it to me, and then we can actually talk about it and we can decide what to do. So thank you very much for that, because that was really beautiful. So this book has seven medicines for, for getting in touch with pleasure. And what I'm really interested in is how to look after yourself, because pleasure and looking after yourself go hand in hand. And so I think it would be really helpful if we looked at some of these seven medicines, because I think it will give people a real concrete way into this topic. So let's look at the first one, which is slowing. What do you mean by slowing? I don't mean standing still and not moving. (laughs) I mean slowing the non-stop, frantic, anxious thoughts in the mind so that the body and the mind can begin to unite at a similar tempo. So we can begin to be present. And as we slow down, there is more information. We become aware that there is more information present. It's the way in, if you like, to sensuality. So you have an exercise that you call somatic snapshot. And I wonder if we could do a somatic snapshot at this moment, or you could actually talk us all through a somatic snapshot. Sure, I have to see if I remember, actually. It's so funny. So begin just by sitting still and starting to draw your attention back from thinking and talking, back into your body. Notice your feet on the ground. 
and your bottom on the chair. And then become curious. What else do you notice about your body right now? Is there something or nothing to notice? Is there perhaps some tension or discomfort? Or irritation? Or numbness? Or warmth? Or cool? What do you notice? What calls your attention in this moment? What's happening in your body? And as you bring your attention to one particular aspect, does it change? Does it open and relax? Do you open and relax? And where are you right now as you notice what is happening in your body? It's kind of like scanning your body and taking a somatic snapshot of what's going on in your arms or legs, your back or belly, your chest, your head, your pelvis. What do you notice? How are you uniquely you right now in this moment? I got something across my shoulders. It was a very small kind of thing, but um, I sort of was aware of, I think I was rather clenching my shoulders, if you can clench your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, when you asked me to put my attention to it, I did sort of feel it sort of opening up a bit. And, you know, I'm immediately thinking of shoulders, you know, responsibility and things, things like that. And, you know, maybe at this precise moment, you know, I'm taking too much responsibility in this program. You know, I have a, I have a structure and things we have to do sort of kind of thing. And maybe, you know, I should actually let that go is what I'm sort of thinking my body might be telling me. Am I sort of heading in the right kind of, direction, Julia? I'm interested by the opening that you experienced and Mm -hmm. curious about that. In what way? How's the opening? Do you feel more relaxed? Is there a deliciousness? Is there a pleasure in the openingness? I mean, partly because I've read your book, the word which I wouldn't have used normally, but the word that I wanted to use was delicious, actually. It did actually feel, that's the best word, delicious. And I could feel it over here as you described it. Really? Wow. (laughs) Because we sort of think delicious comes from outside, like a cake, for example, is delicious, not something that's actually already there in our body if we just relax and feel it. Yup. And so this is what slowing down is all about. I think you call it productive pausing. Mm. explain productive pausing. We tend to think that the faster we go, the better and the more efficient and productive we'll be. But actually taking breaks while we're working, taking breaks while we're living, pausing, 
is natural to the way that we are as people, as animals. And um, not only is it good for us, but it enables us to tap into our inner genius. You just had an insight, right, that arose from sensing your body, from pausing our interview, if you like, right? So in that sense, pausing briefly and often can be really productive. And I think it is really central to self-care because we sort of get up in the morning and it's a bit like an express train. You know, I had these things that I had to do. And in fact, probably that is the first time I've paused today. I mean, I did take the dog for a walk and I sort of got into a different mindset, but I was still actually multitasking almost, whereas this this was the first time I actually had a productive pause. So I, you know, really love that idea that the centre of self-care and medicines for healing and pleasure is slowing. The next medicine that you have is the body. Can you explain that? The body is where we live. It's where our life takes place. And as we said earlier, most of us are most of the time not really in contact with it. The body is the most marvellous piece of inner choreography of chemistry and biology and multiple, tremendous, harmonious, healthy interactions. So, coming back, noticing, appreciating the body that we all live in is a great place to be. And because we are culturally taught or learned to jump out of our bodies, to be in our cleverness, it's something we need to learn again. Children, of course, are naturally at one with their bodies. You see them, children, the way that children move. It's beautiful. It's charming. It's delightful. So we as adults have to learn again to remember that we've got arms and legs, a back, a belly, a chest, a head, a pelvis. And not to worry what people think of them. Well, marketing, media, social media, all those distorted, unnatural images are not useful for us to compare ourselves to and ideas that abound. What's the right shape of a woman's body? What other people say is the way that our bodies ought to be or to look has got nothing or little to do with how you experience from the inside living within your body. And that's what matters. And here's another one of your ideas that can sort of get us into our body, and that is tense and let go. Could you give us a a bit of tense and let go? Sure, let's do it together, Andrew, if you don't mind. So let's 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 go with the shoulders. So bring your attention to your shoulders Mm -hmm. and slowly start to increase the tension in them. So you're bringing your shoulders up and in most likely, but follow exactly. Keep breathing. You don't want to hold your breath. (laughs) So keep breathing and slowly, and I'm doing it too, let's bring our shoulders up. Keep breathing and increase the tension more and more. You can make fists with your hands if you want. Great, you're including your face. And when it's at the peak, absolutely. Ah, let go. And now take big breaths. 
and allow your arms to move if you want to, or your head, or any part of you. But big breaths right now. You might feel that you want to shake your arms a little bit, give them a good shake out, mm. or you might feel that you kind of want to dance with them a bit, or your hands, or your head. Exactly. I see you getting I, I, into it. As yeah. if I'm a member of Pan's people. If you like. Do you remember Pan's people? I do. I'm old enough, yes. For people who don't know who Pan's people are, because you are not English, they were a particularly ridiculous dance troupe that sung to pop songs in the 70s on the television. Normally terribly literal, so if they were singing goodbye, they would always be waving their hands goodbye. And they used to do a lot of shoulder movements. And you're doing glorious movements right now. And what I'm interested in is the arising sense of delight in your body right now, in mine too, or in anyone listening who might have joined in with the exercise. And so tense and let go, shake and release are really good ways of actually getting into your body. So, you know, in one of your productive pauses, you could, you know, do a tense and let go to just sort of get back into your body. Totally. And I often say to people at work, you know, go to the loo when people worked in offices. Now, most of us that are at home, but you know, yeah. Just step away from your desk and tense and go. The next one is deepening. So how do we get beyond the surface? Because that really is the key here, isn't it? Getting beyond the surface. I think it's to do with humility. And most of the time, we think that we know everything, us humans. We think we can measure it and label it and we know what's going on, but we know only a fraction. So in the book, I use the examples of the sciences looking through different lenses, through different perspectives as a way to realise that we actually, most of the time, are only in contact with a fraction of the information that's possible. I notice that here I've opened my hands, my palms widely. Mm -hmm. And I often do that when I'm in receipt, if you like, of subtle information. So deepening is kind of getting out of your own way, kind of realizing that there is lots to look at and listen to and notice and appreciate about what's going on in the world around us and indeed in our own bodies. And you talk about something called presence. So tell me about presence. Well, we've been exploring it a little bit. So as you have tried both these exercises, that flavour of deliciousness that arises is a kind of presence. The presence is there when you described feeling shaky before or I was shaky. It is often palpable. It is indeed a deepening, if you like, into soul or being more soulful. It has a quality of realness. It matters. And then the next medicine is relating. And what I sort of pulled out of this chapter were two ideas that we need to be seen and witnessed and we need to be safe and vulnerable. So I'd really appreciate it if you could sort of expand on those because they they feel really important. And, you know, as somebody who actually is with couples all the time and they're relating, all the time people are asking to be seen and witnessed by their partner. 
Um, and it, we, we find it really hard to see and witness each other. So could you give us some guidelines on how to see and witness each other and, I suppose, by extension, ourselves too? So humility, the medicine of the deepening, is necessary in order to come into a real relationship with another person. When we're convinced that we know who they are, I know who you are. I know what you do. You're, you know, you, 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 you're always like that. And, uh, you know, and especially couples that have been in, in relationships for long times, they still hold the image of somebody from many years or even decades ago. And of course, we can uh, think that so-and-so reminds us of somebody else and we can get confused. So the humility, the deepening is necessary to come into a more real relationship and the slowing down and the body are necessary to come into as prerequisites for really seeing somebody else. Then it kind of happens more naturally. Give me some help help with witnessing because I actually... I can feel my clients actually saying at this moment, how do I witness my partner? Of course, I can see them. They're right there in front of me. But how can I actually witness them? It's more like seeing them, being willing to see them, seeing their beauty, their capacities, their talents, their strengths, their gifts, as well as their hopes and fears their challenges. It's bothering to really look. It's bothering to really listen to them. It's bothering to really notice them as they are right now. So one of the ways I try and help people witness their partner is with the hearing part, which I think is really important, and actually just lifting up what they've just said or repeating it back. For example, I heard you say that really for witnessing, it's really important that you hear your partner. That was a bit of witnessing you. And how did that actually, how did that make you feel just out of interest? I was going to suggest something similar. There's dialogue skills in echoing back to another what they've just said so that they can feel heard. So can you give us an example or a a tip for that? But it can also be really looking at your partner, noticing the detail, what colour they are. Are they slightly pale or flushed? Are they slightly tense? Mm. Um, And as I say that, I notice you take a breath in that. So really observing and looking at somebody, or you've got slight bags under your eyes at the moment, or your eyes are shiny, or just noticing <laughs> the, the, the detail of the right now, and not, uh, and not the big label and not the big image. Mm. So the next thing we have is the medicine of sensing. And I'm going to quote you again, because <laughs> I just love this. Thank you so much for reading my book so well. Which is, pleasure is our true nature. Wow. Tell me more about that. Well, in the tiny exercises that we've played with now, you have touched in, we have touched in, to little experiences of pleasurableness. And my sense is that that pleasurableness is here all of the time, if we 
slow down, notice our body, deepen, come into relationship, then we can enjoy the pleasure that's possible. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, suddenly I become aware of the pleasure literally of my mouth moving to my surprise, of my lips, uh, 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 of my tongue. There, there is a pleasure literally in noticing the contact between our backsides and the seat, right? It, it, it's a small pleasure. Pleasure doesn't have to be dramatic to be pleasurable. And there is always pleasure available, no matter what, actually, whether it is in stroking the cat or drinking a cup of coffee with cream, looking at a beautiful sunshine sky or chatting to a friend. Pleasure is always available. And here's another quote from you as well. And this is back to the heart of self-care. Nothing nourishes as much as our inner capacity for pleasure. Hmm. It's true, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, this is the reason why I'm, I'm lifting them up, because sometimes things are so sort of obvious that we don't really notice them. And when we do notice them, we think, wow, pleasure is our true nature. I mean, that's sort of almost worth putting on the mirror to look at every day. You know, nothing nourishes us as much as our inner capacity for pleasure. You know, it's not being selfish, taking a few moments of pleasure. It is self-care. It's not only self-care, it is essential in order to be able to take care of your pets or your children or your employees. We need to fill ourselves up with some pleasure, enough pleasure that we feel good, that we feel full and not empty. And I want to say that pleasure is not a constant. So there will always be pleasure and pain. There will always be an experience of delightfulness and an experience of sadness. So it's becoming facile, it's becoming able, agile I think is the word I wanted, it's becoming agile with moving through the different states and not to expect of yourself that pleasure will be a constant and then to tell yourself off if if suddenly you're you're having a down day right or a, or a down hour it, it, it it's not that but it is to find the pleasure again and again and again in subtle ways as well as in direct ways the meaningful life with Andrew G Marshall please follow us on twitter like us on Facebook and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. We're doing something new with uh, The Meaningful Life, and that's we're inviting everybody to write in if they have um, something they'd like me to discuss with my guests and send a letter in. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcasts, you will find all the details of this podcast. Go right to the very bottom of it and there's a feedback form. And on that feedback form, which comes through to me, you can write a letter and um, I can share it with Julia. I've got a letter that was sent in a couple of days ago. I'm not feeling that in love feeling with my husband of 25 years anymore, but dread the idea of having to tell him. We don't talk about the lack of intimacy. I doubt he's happy with our situation, 
but generally he's loving and upbeat, looking at the positives and wants to avoid conflict. I'm also a cancer survivor and the anti-hormonal drugs have impacted my sexual desire. Early on in our marriage, we had a lot of financial problems, which drove us apart and which we tackled in different ways. It was made worse because my husband hid things from me, took out loans and made the whole thing much worse. At the time, I forgave him, but now I don't know if this is what made me lose respect and desire. My husband is a very good man, and I would like to desire him again, but it's more complicated than getting out the silk sheets and lighting a candle or taking long baths together, or even asking him to help out more about the house, but that would be nice. Although our passions are different, he loves sport and I prefer dancing, we let each other do our own thing, and we do the things we like together, travelling, nature, hunting for antiques. So we have a good relationship, and I think lots of my friends would say be grateful for what you've got and don't rock the boat. And yet, dot, dot, dot. Julia, any thoughts on this letter? I thought it was rather a beautiful letter, full of hope and potential, actually. She describes lots that's good and a wish for more. So I have a few thoughts that I can offer that, of course, relationships change and we change over the years and decades. And love and intimacy changes too. We're in a different season 25 years later. And a different body as well. (laughs) And that requires kindness. You've spoken a lot about self-care and self-kindness, kindness to self, seems pertinent here. So I wanted to uh, suggest a few things that the author of the letter might like to explore for herself, her own femininity, and to go on an adventure with her. She describes herself as being a dancer. I was also going to suggest exploring other kinds of movement and playing with what makes her feel good, whether that's clothes or lipstick, or hair, or feathers, or velvet, or particular scents, to find her own sensuality, and softness, and femininity. That she doesn't have to be responsible for it all, for the relationship, for the house, for the finances. That she can practice letting go, asking clearly with appreciations before and after what she would like of her partner. I thought that he, for himself, might enjoy exploring masculinity and having an adventure. Perhaps he needs to climb a mountain or go on a boat trip. What does he need to find again for himself as she might need to find again something for herself? And I also thought that Perhaps the support of a natural health practitioner may be useful in rebalancing body chemistry after ill health and recovery. Yes, I I was really wondering what having cancer does to your relationship with your body. Because I think um, my picture is you're fighting part of your body. And how do you stop fighting and start listening to your body again? 
I guess with tenderness, that it has done its best to serve you well. It has healed. It's been through a lot and to love it with kindness. There's ways to, you know, stroke a hand across your body, to kiss your own arm or leg, to appreciate your own body, to look in the mirror at yourself and just find what is beautiful, the curve of a full breast, the curve of a full belly of an older woman, the lines on our faces that show what we've lived through, the experiences that we've lived through. There's great beauty in that. And I find this an optimistic letter because she is listening to something inside herself. Although there is a bit of a debate, you know, my friends would say, you know, put up and shut up. She's saying, and yet... And I think we need to listen to that and yet, because I think it's telling you something really important. And if you don't listen to the and yet, you lose libido. And I'm using that not just in sexual energy, but all energy and all desire. So I think that quite a lot of this lack of desire is because you haven't been listening to your body for a whole long time. So, you know, it's really important that you are listening to it now And you really need to make friends with your body, I suppose. I think that's what we're both saying, isn't it, Julia? In different ways, absolutely, yes. And polarisation can be created. Another thought that I had is it's important for a woman to trust her man. And although, of course, he's not perfect, none of us are, it could be useful to create a list to think about or write down a list of all the good things about him, all his good capabilities, and to start to even say them because a man needs to feel appreciated and a woman needs to trust in the capability that he can hold her. But yes, listening to the body and and also other impulses. Do you feel to like touch his hand or to touch his shoulder or do you feel to withdraw? Absolutely to honour your body. And there is that piece about he can go and find his adventure and masculinity and you can go and find your femininity and self-care and sensuality and then see what sparks between you. It's like pulling apart in order to accentuate your difference. And that's what makes it juicy. That's what creates the polarization. That's what creates the sexiness. And it's a skill and a practice. And and the letter points to so much that's good, including already the space between them that's allowed. I thought that was wonderful. I adore the word juiciness. What's the juicy practice? Well, I mean, she might decide that she wants to, and I'm doing it now as I sit on the sofa, you know, do some pelvic circling, right? To wake up the pelvic area, you know, or... mm, She might pretend she's a member of Pan's people and float around, (laughs) float around doing those terrible literal interpretations of songs. I think they did quite a few of the uh, pelvic thrusts as well. So uh, it's to find what turns her on, if you like, 
to find it again for herself and then bring it back into the relationship and to give him a chance to find it for himself too. Well, we've covered five of the medicines for healing through pleasure and uh, for, through self-care. We're going to do the last two in the bonus material. So if you'd like to find out those last two, which are empowering and aliveness, there'll be details at the end of the program for how to become a supporter and have a chance to listen to the bonus material. And uh, Julia will also be sharing with me three things she knows deep down to be true. But before we um, before we leave and go to the um, bonus material, if you had one piece of advice that you would like people listening to this podcast to take away, what would it be? That your body doesn't lie. That you can trust your body. That you can. <laughs> You can trust your instincts. You can trust yourself. And why were you laughing when you said you can trust your instincts and yourself? I don't know. Maybe, and here, this is, this is just my guess, maybe because sometimes during this um, interview, you haven't actually trust your instincts. You were sort of occasionally sort of in your head rather than in your instincts. I think it's because there was you know, the messages that we are all given is not to trust ourselves. And to really, really trust ourselves is a huge thing. It's a, you know, it's totally life-changing. And difficult to trust me and difficult to trust that um, the people listening to this podcast will listen to it with kindness, compassion, and hopefully a little bit of joy and pleasure. No, I do trust you. I felt very lovely in our conversation. Absolutely. So much goodness can come from people knowing that they can trust themselves. And there's another bit as well that sometimes in order to get there, they may need to reach out to the help of a therapist in order to get to really trusting themselves. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today. And if you'd like to find out more about uh, those seven medicines or to find out the three things that Julia knows deep down to be true, here is the details coming up right now. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.